Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table. I'm Ann Milgram, Professor of Practice and Distinguished Scholar at NYU School of Law and former New Jersey Attorney General. And I'm Juliette Kayyem, Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, a former Assistant Secretary at DHS and a National Security Analyst for CNN. And I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, and I'm Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. So since we last spoke, we've seen quite a few developments in the news, including the historic passage of a 1.9 trillion stimulus, including a landmark child tax credit. Then, hours after the signing of that package, President Biden delivered his first primetime White House address, talking about all Americans becoming eligible to receive the vaccine this summer. And meanwhile, in New York, where I am right now, Governor Andrew Cuomo has continued to dig in despite more calls for his resignation, including those calls coming from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. And also this week, the House is set to vote on two immigration bills, the first steps in Democrats' effort to see what they can accomplish on the immigration issue this year. So we have a lot to talk about. And first, I wanted to turn to you, Juliet, because you wrote a piece for The Atlantic this week on the U.S. border. Right. So we are facing yet another border emergency, and it was anticipated, and there's a variety of reasons why. So what are we seeing? We're seeing unaccompanied minors coming to the border. That's a very, very different pool than the family separation issue, which is not occurring. So families come, they are actually kept together. Unaccompanied minors tend to be teenagers who are sent by their families for a better life. It is tragic. All of us as parents couldn't even imagine doing that. But they then are able to generally align with family members here. But there's, you know, they have to be taken in. They have to be identified. There's a holding process. So there's just quickly, there's three things at play. One is clearly the Trump administration just eviscerated the infrastructure of immigration. So you don't have the judges, you don't have the places, you don't have the facilities, you don't have any of the cooperation that you would want from other countries. Second, and I think this is true and not anything to criticize, I think a new administration served as a magnet to migrants who would want to seek asylum even if they couldn't be guaranteed it. It's just a different tone and and President Biden has a different tone, nothing to be ashamed of, but it, it was viewed as open borders. It's being sold as open borders. I think Republicans are contributing to it being open borders. And then the third quickly is just COVID, that that just changes how you can do things. It is a disaster. FEMA is coming in to try to build more facilities. But the idea that this is like a Biden open border and they're all coming, no, we've seen these numbers before and we anticipated these numbers. I mean, my understanding is that there were a large number of people who were being kept in Mexico yes. and not allowed to enter the U.S. already. So how is that? It's complicated. So, the, so what happened was Trump got agreement from the Mexican president that those asylum seekers would stay in Mexico and wait in line there, so to speak. Then you had another pool that was once Biden's president, when he repealed that rule, That pool then starts to get processed. So the first pool starts to get mad. And so now they're trying to process that first pool while you're just having a massive surge of the second pool. And then you have just, you know, you have Mexico dynamics. You had a Trump supporting president. I think the one factor that's really interesting is the Mexican population has gotten more hardcore about asylum seekers from South America in the sense that they used to be much more permissive about it and they've failed to do so. So the solution is really difficult. 
with the unaccompanied minors, what's the sort of process? Will they be allowed into the U.S.? Will they be kept in facilities? Like, how does it play out and how long does it take? So it doesn't take that long. So I think that some of it is that lawyers will file claims, you know, based on the conditions in that day. And I think that's why the Biden administration wanted to throw resources like FEMA at. So it shouldn't take that long. The law requires that it only takes three days. That is generally the wish rather than the rule. And then they're processed and generally either put into a facility if the family members can't be found. But if family members can be found, which generally they can, that's why the kids are coming. They will be set up with them and, and go and go through a process. So it's it's, it's tragic. I mean, you just, there's just, and there's no point in blaming. I mean, it's just, it's just such a tragedy. How is all of this at the border going to shape Congress's consideration of this new reform bill? So this is yet another attempt to reform the immigration system. How will what's happening at the border shadow the debates over those new bills? I mean, my sense is that the Biden administration put forward a comprehensive immigration bill with every intention that they would not push a comprehensive immigration bill. But I think that what you can get out of a comprehensive immigration reform bill is just a growing consensus of some pathway to citizenship, even if you can't control the border, the southern border right now. You know, the dreamers will be settled. And I think this is a prime time because the polling is really good for it, just as it was for the COVID bill, to forget the Republicans in the Senate and just go to the American people. We need a process to, uh, just like what Reagan did. I mean, this is the crazy thing. It's what Reagan did. I was about to say there's some precedent for it, right? You know, my understanding is that part of the reason it hasn't been done again is that it doesn't solve the underlying problem, Right. right? It sort of takes care of 11 million people who are undocumented in the U.S. today, but it's not solving the person who comes tomorrow who's then undocumented. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been a sense of like, if you want a systemic fix, but obviously that hasn't happened. And so it feels to me like, again, there is precedent for it. And it also sort of is a reset in some ways. Like, I don't I don't know if it will pass or not, but at least it's a point of conversation that the administration seems to have started with. It's a little bit different than we've seen in the last sort of 12 years. Yeah. So another topic of conversation for us to talk about is the vaccination rollout, what's happening in our individual states. We're all sitting in different states right now. And also just, you know, President Biden saying every American will have access to a vaccine by the beginning of summer. And you might not have an appointment, but you'll be eligible. So every American will be eligible by the beginning of summer. I mean, it's It feels to me like, I don't know how you guys feel, but it feels to me like it's picked up in New York recently. Like a lot more people that I know have gotten vaccinated. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about, oh, I'm going to get my shot next week. How are you guys finding it? So I I think more people are becoming vaccinated, um, not only becoming eligible, actually getting vaccinated. The point about people becoming widely eligible in the summer is an important one. But again, you know, I've seen here in California, there are a lot of people who are eligible, but you can't get an appointment. And and getting an appointment requires sitting on your computer with multiple browsers and multiple devices for hours and refreshing and refreshing. And, you know, again, that's a position of privilege. Like, I mean, if you have a job that allows you to be able to do that for hours on end in order to secure an appointment, that's great. But the majority of people, especially those who I think are more vulnerable, are not going to be able to do that. So, you know, again, query why so much of this requires digital access in order to happen. 
I agree. It's all digital. In New York State, I think there's one telephone number that is often busy, mm-hmm. but basically it's like the actual process is all digital, which does feel to me like a significant hurdle. Even for people who are tech savvy, it takes a lot of yeah. time and effort. Well, I think this whole pandemic has established like we need to stop thinking of internet as a luxury. And this is a basic public good. And the question is, how do we get it to more and more people? I mean, we saw this with school and virtual school. Now we're seeing this with just a basic public health infrastructure. Like that's what the internet is now and access to broadband, access to Wi-Fi. That's got to be understood, I think, in terms as like a general public utility. I think within the next eight to 10 weeks, we are going to be so close to herd immunity. And then we'll be talking about vaccine hesitancy after that, which is just looking very different than it did in November of 2020. Is it what you expected? Well, I thought that the numbers were reflecting like my peer group saying no, because they thought Trump was lying about the vaccine. So when they shifted dramatically, yeah, I don't. And then, and then you saw sort of significant shifts in all demographics, except for GOP men and some women. So you've seen the vaccine hesitancy go in all the right directions. That's because vaccinations beget vaccination. So most people who said no really meant not first. And that if you could get people in their community and validators and influencers or whoever else, the unmovable group is MAGA. And it's it's not small. And that's what's scary. I mean, I think I just read 25% of House Republicans have not gotten vaccinated. How do you square that with the fact that President Trump and his wife both got the vaccine? I don't know. I I just I'm sort of curious about it. I mean, it feels to me like, you know, President Trump did it himself and he had also been exposed to COVID. And that feels to me like a really powerful thing that he personally walked in and got the shot, but not enough to overcome political resistance. He didn't tell anyone. I mean, he tells them three, four weeks later. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's it's it'll be interesting. He also didn't take a selfie like the Greek. Was it the Greek president who took a selfie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of leaders who've taken. Well, I know. Who've taken I'm, are, you, are you guys dressing up? I know I, we won't say where everyone is in the line, but are you planning to dress? I think I'm going to dress up. That's interesting. No. I hadn't even thought of that. It's like a no. whole thing. No, I mean, it's been a year since I've dressed up. <laughs> I feel like, like I mean, this is a trick question. This is like, no. <laughs> if, ever, if anyone could see us, I think all three of us are in sweatshirts. Yes, or sweatshirt-ish. Yeah. Like, various, uh, various This hair. is my nice sweatshirt. This is a business yeah. sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a business casual sweatshirt. <laughs> I saw a marketing thing recently that basically said, you can go from like your home onto your Zoom and this sweatshirt looks professional. And I was like... Man, that's where it's come to. Don't laugh about that because I have gone on MSNBC wearing a sweatshirt because I put a necklace on. And I was like, and now I'm ready. <laughs> you have? Well, just that's like a amazing. black sweatshirt. Just like, you know, you can't wow. really yeah. tell. And then you just put a necklace yeah. on. You're like, have you told Room Raider? <laughs> no, no, I've not told Room Raider. <laughs> just one last topic to touch on. The sort of continuing revelations about 
Andrew Cuomo. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I've handled a lot of internal investigations into sexual harassment. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is that when I've done it, even when there's a public allegation that gets the investigation started, the investigation is done behind closed doors and fairly quietly. And that's very different than here where you have a sitting governor. Every allegation has come out publicly, right? And so like I've been brought in in response to public allegations and then found more women who had been subjected to harassment. But that part isn't public till you make the public report at the end. And this is like sort of playing out real time. And I've wondered how much of that has led to the sort of continual calls for his resignation as it's become such a public thing. And the investigation, of course, is not public, at least unless there's a public impeachment inquiry. But right now, the attorney general investigation is behind closed doors. I don't know if you guys have thoughts. The one thing I have just thought about constantly is like, imagine just being able to say, like, I'm not going anywhere in the face of so many allegations. To me, that is actually the most interesting thing about it. You know, you can imagine Al Franken somewhere like, I wish that had been an option. Like, no one told me that you could just stonewall and stay in office. And again, I don't know if these allegations are true. We don't know much about anything, but in the past, the sort of numerosity of them and the frequency with which they've come out would, I think, have led inexorably to the person's resignation. And instead, he's just like, let the process play out. I'm going to stay here. And, you know, in the face of tremendous calls for his resignation from his own party. I mean, this to me is the most interesting part of it. His insistence that they made it up is either such delusional arrogance that he won't get caught, right? Or or the truth, but I'm going to begin with the first because you know more stuff will come out. I mean, just the way that these always unfold. I mean, we're, we're my God, we're on Woody Allen now again, right? So, I mean, I'm sort of slightly obsessed with that minor storyline, which is, is this just a stubborn jerk who's going to lie his way until he can no longer lie his way, which we just had that president? Or is there something in which... Everyone hates him. Clearly, everyone hated him. He has no basis of support, so he has no way to make a realistic argument or a legitimate argument that these accusations, or at least some of them, are false. Like, this is me putting on both sides, right? Both are remarkable to me, you know, considering where he was six months ago. You guys know I've been living in the world of COVID response with the governors and mayors. That's what I did during the Trump administration. And I really liked him. Like, sorry, his team was great. He did a great job. It's just, it's a remarkable to see. Who would you say was the best governor for the COVID response? The Kayam Awards. The yeah. Kayam Awards for best governor. Uh, well, it's so hard because I can't think about it in the context of like any given moment because like now the vaccine rollout is. Well, we'll do it in stages. Like, do it like the Grammys, Julia. So early on, I think definitely California. I think the early closed down states, California, Ohio, really interesting. I think Ohio through and through has been probably pretty consistent. DeWine. DeWine he was very good. Yeah, he's very yeah. good. And then governors can be good with really difficult problems in some cities. So that's where I think, you know, Cuomo, Cuomo was good in terms of you think about crisis management in terms of how he led. Now we're learning about lots of things are going. But in that moment, those press conferences were must-see TV because he gave us the two things everyone wants in a crisis, numbers and hope. 
That's all they want. Right. And he followed that. Like every press conference was the PowerPoints of numbers. Mm -hmm. And then let me tell you about my mother, right? You know, it was like some like, you know, I, oh yeah, my mother is giving me a hard time. And everyone would laugh and that would give them hope. In terms of vaccine rollout, Ned Lamont, my God. So Connecticut is doing great. And some other, like West Virginia, I happen to think a state like West Virginia is probably not following allocation rules. It's <laughs> just throwing them. Well, didn't they just start earlier by going directly to pharmacies? Yeah, they did. And then they've got a state with mostly localized public health facilities. And then I'll just tell you, I don't believe Florida's numbers. I mean, in other words, I think Florida's death rate, we will find 10 years from now. You think will be higher? That's actually really interesting, like coming out of the ACA Medicaid expansion, whether the states that had, you know, the most extensive expansion of Medicaid were in a better position for vaccine distribution. I hadn't even yeah. thought of it that way, Juliet. Yeah. I mean, also look at Indian country, look at tribal country. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. gangbusters. Look at Alaska. Gangbusters. Yeah. yeah. Did you guys know that today would have been Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 88th birthday? And wow. I think they unveiled a statue in Brooklyn yeah. in her honor, Amazing. which is really nice. Wow. She kind of died young. I mean, when you think about it, like 80, I mean, you know, it wasn't, no, 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 but I mean, I, I guess <laughs> that's I, not what I was thinking, but I that's know, awesome. I just, I mean, maybe because I'm like, now 88 is the new 40. <laughs> Yes, it totally is. Melissa, I'm going to say that for the next 30 plus years. <laughs> I had my great aunt passed away at like 106. I'm my great, great aunt. Yeah. So yeah, 88 is very young when you think about it like that. <laughs> so now it's time for our hot flash where we pick a question from a listener and answer it in one sentence or less. So today's question comes from Jean Lee. She asks, inspired by last night's Grammy Awards, who is your favorite musical artist and why? I'm going to say broadly, my favorite artist is The Police, broadly. But I really love Beyonce and I loved her at the Grammys last night. I really oh, yeah. appreciated her just showing up as one does and then leaving as soon as she collected her child's Grammy Award and supported Megan Thee Stallion. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, right. She and Jay-Z have 50 between them, 50 Grammys oh between them I read today. Which but is she just... should have more. And there's a whole discussion Think about, about how she hasn't gotten the album yeah. or something, right? Yeah, yeah record of the that. year. She's been robbed. She's legitimately been robbed. Lemonade was literally the best thing I've ever yeah. heard. The night that album dropped, I watched it by myself because my husband was at some basketball game and he came home and wanted to talk to me. And I was like, I literally have been watching Lemonade for two hours and I hate men. Do not even talk to me until tomorrow morning. And he was like, okay. Um, <laughs> see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Oh my God. Okay. I can't be. Okay. My taste of music is kind of eclectic. During COVID, a friend of mine who's a minister reintroduced me to the Church of Luther Vandross, which I found very, very helpful to listen to yes. because it just was like a constant thinking about romance, but my favorite song has always been Bill Withers' Lovely Day. And actually it has been, it's like, I play that when I walk the dog in the morning. It's like sort of just my upbeat, especially this year when it was not always a lovely day. So that's, that's me. And he passed so away great. this year, didn't he? He passed away this passed year. Away, yeah. yeah. It's a great song. So I would say, I'm not sure that these are my 
I don't know if I would say my favorite artist, but what came into my mind is that what we have on repeat in our house right now is the soundtrack from the movie Sing, which we recently watched. And it is literally like again and again. And it's great. There's some great songs, but it has like old Steve Winwood songs. Yeah. Like it has some Gypsy The Kings, Elton John like song. I'm still standing. I'm still yeah. standing. So it's actually pretty great. And it's also even like Queen with David Bowie under pressure. It's interesting to see our six-year-old learning about these songs. And some of it is really funny also. The other thing I, I have started listening to, which I had not heard before, is a sort of jazz piano, but a really different version of it is a guy called Elu. And he does covers of like all these different songs and he's got some really amazing like covers of Nirvana and Coldplay. I will send it to you guys later, but he basically takes out the top of the piano and puts his hands inside and plays it. And you can find videos of him, but I saw him on a zoom one night performing and I was blown away. And so I now have been listening to his album a ton. I had a, a yacht rock period during pandemic. <laughs> no. Oh yeah. The most underrated band of all time. Ambrosia. Oh, the best. <laughs> Ambrosia is the best. You're the only woman that I, I have the worst. You are the woman that I've always dreamed of. I you have a good voice. Start. You have a beautiful <laughs> voice and I totally know it. That's it for our show today. Thanks everyone for listening. Talking Fed's Women at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Production assistance is by Matt McCardle. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. As always, thanks to the amazing Philip Glass for allowing us to use his music. Talking Fed's Women at the Table is a production of Dalito LLC. Looking forward to next time. <laughs>